You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. If your team is ready to improve patient outcomes, check out the website www.daytoniceuconsulting.com for information about webinars and consulting services. Okay, finally, the long-promised episode on the financial picture of early mobility and delirium management in the ICU. This topic can be a vast rabbit hole, so it has taken me a while to feel like I compiled enough but not too much information on this. Additionally, and not so surprisingly, there is poor accessibility and transparency when it comes to the financial side of medicine. It is difficult to find clear estimates for things like costs for one day in the ICU or one day of mechanical ventilation. There are some reports, but they are usually from at least 15 years ago. We also know that costs vary drastically between ICU specialties, patients, and even stages of an ICU stay. Also, cost analysis can be conflicting in this realm. What is cost-effective can be contrary with our mission as healthcare workers and the objective of the ICU. For example, prompt death is often more cost-effective, but not in line with most of our societal values. Additionally, the bigger picture of ICU care, such as rehabilitation, length of stay, return to work, outpatient care, long-term healthcare costs, and such, are not captured in any cost analysis that I could find. Nonetheless, despite these gaps, there is a lot we do know about the cost benefits of early mobility and delirium management in the ICU. So let's start with what we know. I'll try to stay calm, but I get really worked up about this aspect of this discussion, just as I do with any aspect of this discussion. (laughs) We know, first of all, that the ICU is very expensive for hospital systems. A study from 2011 showed that approximately 27% of the hospital stays across the U.S. involved time in the ICU, and those stays accounted for 48% of aggregate charges from the hospital. I've talked to teams that say, well, we're not sure if we can invest in training and supporting our staff in these changes. We're really trying to save $25 million this year. To that... I share the following insights into why our system cannot afford to continue to deeply sedate and immobilize every patient on a ventilator. Throughout this podcast, we have talked about patient suffering, quality of life, survival, staff fulfillment, and so on. But let's be honest, the businesses are ultimately not going to change the current status based on that. Investing in safe staffing ratios, training, interdisciplinary collaboration, so on, will not be a priority until we can demonstrate that investing thousands will save them millions. So let's do just that. Since we know that ICU care contributes to such a substantial part of our total healthcare costs and especially hospitalization costs and even outpatient costs, Let's dive into what we know about the costs of our current sedation and immobility culture. An easy first target is delirium. 
we know that 81% of ICU patients have delirium. Of importance to note, one episode of delirium leads to a 40% increase in ICU and hospitalization costs. Again, that's one episode of delirium and a 40% increase in costs. A study from 2004, so 18 years ago, total ICU costs increased from a median of 13,000 for patients without delirium to 22,000 for patients that had at least one episode of delirium in the ICU. So one episode of delirium increased the cost by $9,000. Total hospitalization costs increased from 27,000 without delirium to 41,000 with at least one episode of delirium. So 27 to 41,000 for at least one bout of delirium. Higher severity and duration of delirium were associated with incrementally greater costs. So if our healthcare systems really understood the financial cost of delirium, they would be much more invested in preventing and treating to shorten the duration of delirium. A study from 2008 showed that the total cost attributable to delirium ranged from $16,303 to $64,421 per patient. Again, costs just for delirium per patient were between $16,000 and $64,000. This implies that the national burden of delirium on the healthcare system ranges from $38 billion to $152 billion each year. And that was back in 2008, pre-COVID and pre-recent inflation. The economic impact of delirium rivals healthcare costs of falls and diabetes. A lot of the increase in costs ties directly back to the increased length of stay from delirium. One study showed that the mean difference of ICU length of stay for patients was 4.77 days longer than patients without delirium. Then total hospital length of stay was 6.67 days longer for patients with delirium compared to those without. So incre delirium increased time in the ICU by 4.77 days and time in the hospital by 6.67 days. A different study showed that patients with delirium stayed twice as long in the hospital accounted for twice the number of nursing hours and twice the total cost per case. So this is just on the acute care side, but the financial cost doesn't stop at discharge. A study from 2016 in Australia showed that delirium causes an estimated 10.6% of all dementia in Australia. In 2016, the total cost of delirium in Australia was equivalent to 5.3 to $12.1 billion. Within those costs, about 1.9 of those costs were contributable to the financial loss of delirium patients that suffered after hospitalization. $3.4 American billion was from the loss of a healthy lifestyle after delirium. Dementia from delirium was attributable to $2.9 billion of the total almost $12 billion cost of delirium, presumably much greater. The cognitive impairments acquired from the delirium or acute brain failure developed under our care impacts survivors, their caregivers, and our system. A study about this was performed in 2008 in Italy, 
where there, nursing homes are rare and care for delirium survivors comes down to families hiring private caregivers. The estimate was that there were about 900,000 of these caregivers for such delirium survivors. The monthly stipend for these caregivers, which was about 1,100 American dollars a month, paid by the families, posing a significant burden to most families. So enough about the problem. What is the solution? Delirium prevention and management strategies. The most obvious modifiable risk factor for delirium in the ICU is sedation. We know that sedation causes delirium at varying rates, right? So Ativan is one of the biggest culprits. One milligram of Ativan creates a 20% increased risk of delirium. So if you give two milligrams every six hours, there is 160% increase in risk of delirium in the next 24 hours. That alone clearly has increased the cost by 40%. Midazolam is another top culprit. For every one milligram of midazolam, there's a seven to 8% increased risk of delirium. So theoretically, the lowest rate of midazolam is usually five milligrams per hour. So five milligrams per hour over 24 hours is 120 milligrams per day times the lowest estimate of 7% increased risk, which creates a total of an 840% risk increase of delirium. That is an expensive medication. Propofol has a lower risk compared to benzodiazepines, but certainly depends on the dose, duration, and depth of sedation. Dexmedetomidine has the lowest risk of delirium, though it can still impede delirium prevention interventions such as family engagement and mobility if used for deeper rest and for a longer period of time. Yet, its lower risk of delirium explains in large part why it is so much more cost-effective than other sedatives. One study compared the cost per patient between dexmedetomidine, propofol, and midazolam. The costs were estimated to be $21,115 for dexmedetomidine, $27,073 for propofol, and $27,603 for midazolam. Dexmedetomidine was associated with a savings of $5,958 per patient compared to propofol, and a saving of $6,487 compared to midazolam. These savings were primarily driven by a reduction in ICU length of stay and the degree of monitoring and management required. So rates of delirium depend on the agent, dose, depth, and duration of sedation. Subsequently, patient harm or complications and healthcare costs are directly impacted as well. We know that decreasing and especially avoiding sedation drastically prevents and decreases delirium. One delirium bundle that included sedation cessation, early mobility, pain management, and sleep promotion decreased delirium by 78%. The largest ABCDEF bundle with over 20,000 patients showed that the A to F bundle reduced delirium and comedase by 25 to 50% and significantly reduced healthcare costs. Another expensive aspect of our current culture and process of care is the cost of immobility. We know that when patients are sedated and immobilized while on mechanical ventilation, 
it causes significant muscular atrophy and can lead to prolonged time in the ventilator, time in the hospital, and discharges to LPACs and rehabilitation centers. It has been seen that patients on mechanical ventilation for more than 21 days, presumably sedated and immobile, continue to suffer prolonged physical impairments that require extensive rehabilitation, outpatient care, and results in loss of income. They found that six months after discharge, that though lung volumes had normalized, only 38% of patients had returned to work in their previous role, and only 32% had returned in their previous role and hours. This results in a financial burden for healthcare systems and survivors. Likely due to the prolonged time of the ventilator and stay in the hospital and care facilities, ICU-acquired weakness increases healthcare costs by 30.5%. So the financial problem of immobility is clear. What's the solution? Early mobility. Early mobility has proven to drive down healthcare costs. The total net value present over a seven-year time horizon of an early mobility program for a U.S. hospital with 1,000 yearly ICU admissions exceeds $2.3 million. So over seven years for 1,000 ICU admissions a year, the value, the net value was $2.3 million saved. The yearly cost of care savings generated by reducing ICU and non-ICU for both ventilated and non-ventilated patients and the number of days on ventilation for a hospital is approximately $927,000 a year. The impact of early mobility programs on hospital readmissions generates an additional $93,000 annual savings by reducing U.S. hospital readmission penalties. Remember, the benefits and likely cost savings of early mobility depends on the extent in which it is used. So these studies and calculations reflect savings that were likely with a less progressive early mobility program than the full awakened walking ICU approach that I advocate for. Nonetheless, the financial benefit is clear. Another study evaluating the financial savings from early on was at Johns Hopkins in 2013. They used extremely conservative calculations with 900 annual admissions but early mobility led to length of stay reductions of 22% in the ICU and 19% for the floor. The savings were conservatively $817,836 for those 900 admissions. Sensitivity analysis, which use again conservative and best case scenarios for length of stay reductions for ICU and floor costs across ICUs with 200 to 2,000 annual admissions yielded financial projections ranging from 87,611 net cost to $3,763,149 of net savings. So essentially these hospitals paid $87,000 to save $3.7 million. They apply these projections to 24 scenarios and 20 of those demonstrated net savings with small net cost. How are we not implementing these interventions in our healthcare systems? And again, these were very conservative models. We have to continue to remember that just as the outcomes from the A to F bundle are dose dependent, so are the financial benefits. 
Meaning the more aggressive and consistently we prevent delirium and atrophy, the more healthcare costs will be saved. It is repeatedly demonstrated that the investments hospitals make to facilitate those practices have an impressive return on investment. Early mobility alone has shown to reduce the incidence of delirium by even 95%. And remember, delirium increases costs by 40%. That this is a significant saving with delirium prevention alone. Yet when ICU acquired weakness increases costs by 30.5%. And by implementing the A to F bundle, we can greatly reduce both delirium and ICU acquired weakness. Can we suspect that combining cost of these complications could lead to 70% reduction in healthcare costs for many ICU patients? Just a thought. Another very expensive aspect of the ICU is mechanical ventilation. The longer patients are on the ventilator, the more expensive their in-hospital and post-acute care are going to be. Things that lead to time on the ventilator are sedation because of the respiratory suppression, slower ventilator weaning, respiratory failure from the weakness of the respiratory muscles and delirium, decreased lung aeration from immobility, ventilator-associated pneumonia, perhaps in large part from the immobility, impaired cough, decreased secretion mobilization and clearance, and so forth. Other things that cause increased time on in the ventilator are ventilator-associated conditions, VACs. That includes ARDS, barotrauma, pulmonary edema, pulmonary embolism, and IVACs, which are infection-related ventilator-associated conditions, which include sepsis, ventilator-associated pneumonia. So the more time a patient spends on the ventilator, the more at risk they are of developing a VAC or a IVAC, but then those complications increase the time on the ventilator. Also, delirium and ICU-acquired weakness increase time on the ventilator. So a huge priority in our teams and system should be to only keep patients on mechanical ventilation for the minimal amount of time required to treat the initial complication that led them to require mechanical ventilation. The more we sedate patients and cause preventable prolonged time on the ventilator, the more we expose them to the risks of mechanical ventilation. So sedation and immobility are ultimately financial sinkholes for our systems. One study showed that mechanical ventilation was associated with a 25.8% increase in daily costs of ICU care. So what is the best way to decrease time on the ventilator, prevent ventilator-associated complications, and drastically cut costs? Avoid sedation and prompt an active mobility. So when hospital systems refuse to invest in hiring more rehabilitation clinicians, such as occupational and physical therapists, are they really being financially responsible and driving down healthcare costs? What do we know about physical therapy and medical costs? We know that physical therapy in the ICU can decrease time on the ventilator, time in the ICU, and time in the hospital. They improve functional status and improve discharge home rates, long-term fun functional status, and decrease hospital and ICU readmissions. And all of that results in decreased healthcare costs. A study in Brazil showed that having physical therapists in the hospital for 24 hours rather than 12 hours actually resulted in decreased total medical and staff costs because they so drastically lowered the length of stay and time on the ventilator. Perhaps that's why I'm getting so many incredible pictures and videos from Brazil 
of COVID patients with high ventilator settings playing volleyball and such in the ICU. They are very motivated to decrease their costs by increasing the presence and application of physical therapy. One study scoured Medicare records and found that occupational therapy was the only spending category in which there was a significant reduction in readmission rates for diagnoses of heart failure, pneumonia, and acute myocardial infarctions. There are so many ways in which occupational therapy prevents readmissions and decreases lengths of stay. They have proven that the bigger their role and presence is in acute and ICU care, the more patients can discharge home safely, the shorter their lengths of stay are, and the less hospital-acquired complications they suffer, which is all proven to drive down healthcare costs. The Johns Hopkins MICU admits about 900 patients each year. In 2008, the hospital created an early rehabilitation program with dedicated physical and occupational therapists. That addition increased their costs by $358,000 a year. However, by the next year in 2019, the length of stay in that MICU had decreased by 23%, down from six and a half days to five days. And then the time on step-down units or the floor decreased by 18%. Using their conservative financial model, they estimated a net savings for the hospital of about $818,000 per year, even after factoring the upfront costs. So even after factoring $358,000 per year of investing in those therapists, they saved $818,000. And that's a very conservative model. And again, that always depends on the level of mobility. And so this was a new program for them. And perhaps it wasn't the full awake and walking process. Nonetheless, decreased time in the ICU by 23%, time on the floor by 18%, and saved them $818,000 per year. So presumably their cost savings for physical and occupational therapy also depends on a unit's sedation practices and the utilization of those therapies. We can have those therapists there for 24 hours a day, but if our patients continue to be deeply sedated, then we have deprived them of the benefit of physical, occupational, and speech therapists. We know that true implementation of the ABCDEF bundle decreases time on the ventilator. A study done with 12 ICUs evaluated the impact of just daily awakening and breathing trials. So keep in mind, these are just the breathing trials, adequate sedation vacations that allow for breathing trials. This is without true early mobility and full delirium prevention with minimal sedation, right? Nonetheless, with just doing these breathing trials, they found a decrease in 2.4 days on the decrease of three days in the ICU and a decrease of 6.3 days in the hospital. Their ventilator associated conditions, so such as ARDS, barotrauma, pulmonary edema, pulmonary embolism, all of those conditions were decreased by 37%. Their infection-related ventilator-associated conditions, such as sepsis, ventilator associated pneumonia decreased by 65%. So a decrease, 37% decrease in VACs and a 65% decrease in IVACs. Holy cow. Another study showed that the A to F bundle implementation in two different ICUs resulted in a reduction duration of mechanical ventilation, ICU and hospital length of stay, restraint use, and reduced hospitalization costs by 24 to 30% depending on the compliance with all the elements of the bundle. A 24 to 30% reduction in costs just from the A to F bundle. 
Wow. So we've also seen that the ADF bundle reduces discharges to nursing homes and rehabilitation facilities by 40% and cut ICU readmissions in half, continuing to keep healthcare costs lower even after hospital discharge. Ultimately, our current culture and practices are needlessly expensive and create significant waste and burden on our system. It is imperative that we make this clear to the purse string holders, hospital administrators, insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, anyone with an influence in our staffing ratios and an invested interest in decreasing healthcare costs. They need to understand that in this, there is a need to spend money to save money. When hospital systems force ICU nurses to struggle to care for four patients instead of one or two, they are creating a storm of death, suffering, and incredible expense. When nurses do not have the support, training, and opportunity to avoid sedation, prevent delirium, and mobilize their patients, then they end up doing far more work running to change sedation drips, consequently run in titrate vasopressors, break their backs, turning obese, flaccid bodies every two hours, and bear the emotional trauma of constant poor outcomes. Our practices are leading to at least 4.77 more days in the ICU. Though this has to be higher now, I am confident that this is higher because of complications like ventilator-associated pneumonia, failure to wean from the ventilator, pressure injuries, and so forth, are on the rise because of the impact of quality of care. These studies and estimates on increased time in the ventilator were not done during COVID and this staffing crisis. That data was collected when a different quality of care was being provided. Logic would lead us to suspect that patients are staying in the ICU far longer as these complications increase. Also, the staffing crisis affects LTACs and sedation practices have worsened in the ICU. More patients are having tracheostomies and requiring LTAC admissions, but are often unable to transfer from the ICU. I asked online how often ICU survivors are staying at least one extra day in the ICU because LTACs were unable to receive their patients. 30% of responders said that this was happening 25 to 50% of the time. 36% said this happened 50 to 75% of the time. And 30% said it happened 75 to 100% of the time right now. This is incredibly expensive and taxing on our nurses and entire teams. We don't have the workforce to afford to make patients sicker, more debilitated, and stuck in our facilities for longer. It doesn't make sense when we can implement practices that will enable our patients to extubate and walk out the doors. This must contribute to the mass exodus of nurses and the increased costs on systems to rehire and half attempt to retain nurses. If we had better protocols and support to provide better care, it would be cheaper and far more effective for ICU teams, patients, families, hospitals, and our entire healthcare system. By understanding the reality of our practices, that sedation is so often unnecessary and results in expensive, lethal, and inhumane repercussions, then we can use the evidence to speak the language of the stakeholders, which is money. We can talk about human suffering with all the passion, but in this, the strongest card to play is likely money. Yet, it is our card to play. Let's show them that poor care is expensive care. The misguided approaches to decreasing healthcare costs and increasing revenue by staffing hospitals 
at the bare minimum have backfired? What if reimbursement agencies such as insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid really understood that though they won't reimburse hospitals for additional time and care in hospitals for central line infections, they are still reimbursing hospitals for days to weeks of extra time on the ventilator and often preventable additional weeks to months in LTAC or SNFs, all because of the failure to implement preventative measures such as the aid to F bundle. Hospitals ran to standardize preventative measures such as Foley and central line care when they realized they would be financially penalized for those hospital-acquired infections. They increased education, standardized processes of care, ran chart audits, and held people accountable when preventable events happened. But what will get them to have the same approach to preventing delirium and ICU-acquired weakness? If they knew they could lose potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient, when a patient was inappropriately sedated and immobilized and suffered delirium for weeks, would they rush to adequately staff the units, make sure RAS scores were accurate, CAMS tests were being done, physical and occupational therapy was being promptly and optimally utilized? What if reimbursement agencies audited for awakening and breathing trials? What if hospitals weren't reimbursed for tracheostomies and the rehabilitation required from diaphragm dysfunction and ICU-acquired weakness? that occurred during inappropriate sedation and immobility practices? Would the A to F bundle suddenly become more important when framed in terms of dollar figures? What if poor sedation and mobility practices were recognized as malpractice in court? It is easy to demonstrate that we are generally practicing against 10 to 15 years of evidence. It is simple to trace patient harm, suffering, and costs back to sedation and immobility practices and the failure to practice the A to F bundle. What if we started to think, wow, how can I defend myself in court for a RAS of negative three? How could I explain allowing that dose of midazolam? How could we justify the failure to have this patient out of bed for three weeks? What if hospital systems and even clinicians felt the pressure of those liabilities? I am convinced that if money talk is what it takes, then we can do that. References to all these studies are on the blog. Use them. As we face this medical revolution, let's bring the evidence to the table and to support our plight for safer staffing ratios and better patient care. It is clear that humane care is cost-effective care. Thank you for staying in critical care medicine. Thank you for advocating for your patients against all the barriers. I am convinced that painting the financial picture in these discussions will provide compelling advocacy for staff and patients alike. It's up to us to shape the future of critical care. Study and understand the research. Play these cards with confidence. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.